crowd of the news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Hi there. A quick warning. This episode deals with domestic violence and discusses details of abuse. Please listen with care. It's impossible not to be shocked by the events that took place in rural Ontario on September 22, 2015. Three women, Anastasia Kuzik, Natalie Warmerdam, and Carol Colleton, all killed within hours of each other by one man. Seven years later, a coroner's inquest has now been completed. 86 recommendations have been brought forward. What we do with those recommendations might very well be the key to ensuring a tragedy like this doesn't happen again. Today, we're going inside the inquest to unpack some of the key and surprising recommendations that were made and get into what happens next for lawmakers and for us. I'm Garvia Bailey. This is The Big Story. My guest today has been following this story over the past seven years. Sarah Bosvelt has written about the Renfrew County murders for Chatelaine magazine, and Sarah's with me today. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning. What prompted an inquest into the deaths of these three women? So the morning of September 22nd, 2015, a man named Basil Barutsky left his home and drove to a cottage where his uh, friend, I guess, used to be his partner in a weird way, uh, Carol Culleton, had been living. And he entered into her home, killed her with a coaxial cable, and moved on to kill two other partners, former partners of his. Uh, Next was Anastasia Kuzik, who lived in Wilno, Ontario, and he shot her. And then he moved on to Natalie Warmerdam's home and he shot her as well. That led to a huge manhunt in Renfrew County. And uh, he was eventually captured and charged with three counts of first degree murder. And he was convicted in November 2017 and sentenced a month later. Mm. This triple homicide is very rare. It is what we call a domestic homicide. So it involved three former partners of one person. Um, Pretty extensive trauma to the community and obviously the families. But what it also did was expose a lot of systemic problems in how intimate partner violence is dealt with leading up to a trauma as horrific as a triple homicide to happen in one morning in one community in rural Ontario. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, these intimate partner homicides, domestic homicides, they continue and have continued at a great rate. Since then, the pandemic has made them worse. Mm. This case really crystallized what happens when there are systemic issues 
when there are many aspects of intimate partner violence that are overlooked and not intervened on early enough and that do end in homicide for people involved in these relationships. It has really been an awful tragedy for the community and for the province and and really nationwide this has been happening. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about these women? Who were they to their communities and to their, their families? Well, I'll start with Natalie Warmerdam, who was the third woman to be killed that morning, but had the longest relationship with Basil Barutsky. So Natalie Warmerdam was the mother of two children, and she was a hospice nurse. She was very involved in our community. She volunteered in the library in Eganville, which is in Renfrew County. She had a little hobby farm, she had chickens. Um, she had uh, a really warm personality and was really loved by so many. And she really wanted to help. And she really saw Basil Barutsky as someone who maybe did need a little bit of a, a hand, uh, a loving partner. Mm. She did uh, care for him deeply. They had a relationship that was obviously quite volatile, but... Um, one in which she really believed that he was the victim of a lot of circumstances and she really tried to help him. Um, Anastasia Kuzik uh, was the second woman murdered that day. She was a realtor. She was a server at the Wilno Tavern, which is the only place to get any food in Wilno, um, which is a very small community in Renfrew County, uh, close to the border of Algonquin Park. And she had two sisters. She did not have children of her own. Uh, she had um, a history of very abusive relationships in her own life. Mm. And so she, you know, experienced that as well with Basil Borutsky. It was a much shorter relationship. And she um, did actually charge him with some, or he was charged with some crimes uh, connected with her and I can tell you more about that in another part of the conversation, but uh, she was very well loved as well by the, the patrons of the tavern and certainly um, folks who were just friends of hers in the community and used her services as a realtor. Carol Culliton um, was different from the others in that she was not actually really a resident or embedded in Renfrew County much. She is, lived in North Gower, Ontario. She's a public servant. She was just about to, or just had just retired from her job in the public service. She and her husband had bought this cottage that was in Renfrew County on the shores of Lake Kamenisgeg, which is near Combermere, Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, they had lived there, just, just spent summers there and she was, uh, widowed though. And so that's why, you know, she and Basil Borsky ended up, you know, connected to one another. But, uh, you know, part of what happened in the, the weeks running up to the, the triple homicide was that, uh, she had connected with another boyfriend, uh, reconnected with someone that she had been seeing before. Mm -hmm. And that really angered Basil Borsky. And mm -hmm. so, that was deemed one of the reasons why, uh, you know, he may have gone on that rampage that day, a trigger for him. So there were, and you alluded to this, um, that there were many red flags surrounding the perpetrator of this crime. He had been charged with intimate partner assault and had, had charges dropped. He had been vocal about a desire to kill his ex-wife. His threats and harm went back 40 years. Mm -hmm. So... Why is it so hard for these red flags to be addressed in meaningful ways? 
Yeah, it's really complicated. There is an attitude in society that intimate partner violence is the personal business of two people and a couple. What happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors, as it were. That is definitely an attitude that it seems to be more prevalent in, in certain cultures. And I would call rural Ontario and a rural community a certain culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is also the criminal justice system's response to this, which is informed by society's attitudes very much about intimate partner violence. So, you know, a judge sitting in front of uh, a court saying, hmm, that doesn't sound so bad to me, or he says that he's sorry so, you know, let's let's kind of let this slide. And and then also um, there have been changes in the responses in the criminal justice system to intimate partner violence in that back in the 1980s, a woman had to say, look, I I will charge him. Like it was a decision that was on the woman. And, you know, in some ways, mm-hmm. great. She has autonomy. But when the pressures um, to to not have him be charged are so strong, she knows that she might be at greater harm. And we have great research to back this up that she is at greater harm if she does uh, pursue charges, as it were. That did change in the 90s um, to something called mandatory charging, Mm. um, which has its own problems, though, as as we found. uh, If the woman, say, it's usually a woman, I'm not saying that's always a woman being uh, assaulted, can sometimes be someone obviously of a different gender. But any interaction with the justice system it can be aggravating to that perpetrator and come at a certain cost to that woman. Say he's the only breadwinner. Say there's children involved. How are they going to kind of keep life moving ahead if he's tied up in the criminal justice system, you know, and he's, he's, pissed off about it. And so that can actually put her in greater harm. So mm-hmm. that was that was present in this case as well. And something like, um, you know, probation, he did not, he refused to sign a line on uh, essentially a restraining order that Anastasia Kuzik had, that had been done in the criminal justice case that she was involved in. And he just refused to sign it and nothing was done about that. There's no follow-up. <gasps> His probation officer, he was assigned a probation officer, but um, there was no real supervision or follow-up of him that was meaningful. He he gamed the system big time. The police who testified at the inquest said this. He was really good at manipulation. So he would just, you know, say he was staying at one residence and, you know, pr- make footprints leading up to the door in the snow. Mm. He wasn't actually there, but he would pretend that he was there. And there was also like intimate partner violence, red flags aside, um, he was, he had a huge list of people that he said openly that he wanted to kill or harm. And that was found by police that day. And so there were actually lockdowns much broader than just that community. Ottawa, there was a courthouse in Ottawa that had to be under lockdown because he had this huge list of people he said that he wanted to harm or kill. And so that was well known that he had this like hit list. And so you know, that, that is another red flag. And there is something, uh, there's a system in, in Ontario, it's called, or a committee called the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee. So after these intimate partner homicides happen, there is an analysis of that. And they actually go through the red flags. Um, he had something like 40 red flags out of 51. Wow. This is again in hindsight wow. though. So there's some problems, <laughs> you know, there, right? Like this is something that we know yeah. later but it's not collated till later. Uh, but they were all quite present uh, in the lead up to the, these these murders. Incredible. So the inquest, what was it meant to accomplish? And 
And if you can just take us inside what the inquest, like who is involved? How does, how does an inquest like this work? Yeah, so this is a coroner's inquest. So the coroner obviously, you know, has its role of, of kind of dealing with deaths of any manner in Ontario. Um, they have a responsibility or an, an option. They don't have to call an inquest um, on every death, of course. Um, but if they see that there's there are some issues uh, and some potential things to investigate as to how can we prevent these these deaths in future, then they take a close look at it. So there was a coroner's inquest called into this triple homicide, and it involved the coroner as the counsel, like the chief lead counsel, mm-hmm. and it had people who could have something called standing, legal standing. So that was uh, end violence against women, Renfrew County. That was essentially the sexual assault center in Renfrew County and the shelters and the victim services. They got involved because a lot of the systemic problems affect them and, and the population that they serve. And then Valerie Warmerdam, who is the daughter of Natalie Warmerdam, also had legal standing. So what standing really means is that they can stand up and ask questions. Um, so witnesses are called kind of like in a criminal trial. Mm-hmm. And there is a jury kind of like in a criminal trial or, say, a civil trial, of course. But it's different in that it's not about finger pointing, per se, or finding blame or fault. It's more about um, really looking at the systemic problems and uh, just taking, like, putting a fine tooth comb on it, asking questions about sort of what is supposed to happen, what did happen in the circumstance, and how can we look at doing it better. And so the job of the jury at the end of the three weeks, it was three weeks long, was to really um, come up with some recommendations so that the province, the federal government, uh, other, you know, systemic bodies, even, even the coroner's office, what could be done that would be different to potentially protect other folks who are subject to intimate partner violence? How, how do we mm. prevent these deaths from happening in the future? Mm. So that is the scope of the coroner's inquest. Okay. And the jury did come up with a huge slate of recommendations uh, that were, of course, informed by what those other three parties I had suggested to based on what was heard. So there were 72 recommendations. That was what the three parties put together. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then the, the jury accepted all of them mm-hmm. and then added 14 more. Yeah, that was pretty stunning, actually. Now, how common is that in an inquest? What does that say about this jury? Well, I'm not sure how common it is. This is the only inquest I've covered in depth, right. in any okay. depth. But, but, um, the jury was really amazing to watch. It was five regular folks from Renfrew County. And the other thing about this inquest is that they're not always held in the community. They can be held in, you know, a boardroom in Toronto or sure. Ottawa, like the major cities. But it was really particular to uh, this community. It was really unique in that they really involved the community in this inquest. There was a community consultation that happened before. And they had it, they physically had it in Pembroke, Ontario, which is probably the biggest town in Renfrew County, which is just mm-hmm. west of Ottawa and extremely rural, uh, huge, the size of Prince Edward Island. And so these are just regular folks called the same way that most juries are called. Like if you get a jury notice in the mail, mm-hmm. um, that's how folks are selected. And and then they they sat and listened to all this testimony, and it was really amazing. They were had the opportunity to ask questions of the witnesses, and these were witnesses like that were the police, that were people from probation, that were people from like the chief firearms office, 
into experts on intimate partner violence. So they really learned a lot about the nuances and dynamics of this type of violence, maybe for the first time ever. And so they were extremely engaged. And then they went away and deliberated for, you know, about a, a day or so with the 72 recommendations to work with and came up with some more based on what they were hearing and questions and concerns they had. And their their recommendations were very impressive. And, you know, mm. some of them, you know, you wonder how realistic it would be. But if you were kind of coming at these issues for the very first time, um, and some of them were quite creative and uh, really meant to sort of turn the dial on this issue and, mm. and change things for the better. They really seemed passionate about that. Can you tell me one of those um, creative sort of um, recommendations that came from the jury? Because we're going to get into some of the the nitty gritty of the recommendations. But but because you said this, I really, I'm curious now what the juries came up with. Yeah, so the very first one, number one recommendation of that huge number 86 all told was asking the province of Ontario to declare intimate partner violence as an epidemic in Ontario. Mm. And sure, you could look at that and say, those are words, right? That's an easy, hopefully an easy thing for the province to do. Uh, you know, you make a declaration. But what was really amazing and, and powerful about that was that words obviously carry a huge amount of weight and responsibility and expectation that should flow from that. So if the province of Ontario did do that, like from there flows all the rest of the recommendations. If we take mm-hmm. this seriously as a province, uh, if we say and commit to acting on it, um, that's very powerful. And that could be really transformative for a number of people living with this violence in Ontario. And as a, as someone with a media background, I also mm. was very impressed because that was the headline, you know, in all the news stories after. Yeah. And I said, these are very savvy <laughs> folks here in Renfrew County. And it was their recommendation. It was their idea to do this. It wasn't led to them in any way. It was really just them saying, oh my gosh, I did not appreciate the extent of this violence in my own community and in Ontario. Um, it, It was said at the inquest during testimony that 111 more women and girls have died in Ontario since this triple homicide wow. in September 2015. And I mean, that's a lot. That's, that's a lot. And the pandemic has made it worse. And because of isolation, you know, and some the well-intentioned stay-at-home order, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's protect mm-hmm. people from COVID. But, you know, isolation is a gift for abusers. Um, and a lot of uh, tracking on online, you know, if everything's mm-hmm. virtual, that's easy for an abuser to track. So for having the the jury to want to declare this as something that is systemic, problematic, and extensive in Ontario was really powerful. They also had ideas like create a, a safe room for high-risk situations. They have these things called high-risk tables where in communities mm-hmm. these experts gather and they talk about a plan, you know, and also just have funding for these things that are called like mobile tracking devices. Mm-hmm. So like it's something that um, Natalie Warmerdam had. It was like a pager type thing where if she was in real trouble, she should hit it. And then 911, it's basically like calling 911. And, right. and, you know, the sad truth of it is that if somebody has the, one of those tracking devices, they're, they're probably going to be dead in Renfrew County before being reached. That was heard in testimony wow. because it is very vast. The resources mm-hmm. are very scant. Um, but that was their idea to like make sure that that funding is is there and extensive for for something like a tracking device. 
Mm. Yeah. So they, they had added a few other things, um, you know, have a Royal commission on changing the way that victims participate in criminal court, because we know, uh, you know, the way the criminal justice system is set up, if you have a crime perpetrated against you, you know, that you are involved somehow, but really at a, at an arm's length and not, not actively, you have no legal representation. You know, you're just kind of sitting on the sidelines about this thing that had happened to you. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. The crown is representing the province. And then, you know, the, the defendant obviously has their liberty at stake. So they have a lot of resources, but um, this Royal commission that they suggested the jury was to like, let's look a lot closer at how you know, victims' rights are sort of protected in that whole experience, um, if there's any agency at all to a victim. And that could be much broader than sexual violence or intimate partner violence issues, because we've seen that that's been a problem or an issue in a lot of cases involving sexual assault and domestic violence, too. So these ideas have been pretty um, interesting, transformative. You know, they really need political will to be acted upon, though. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. You have recommendations that are so powerful from the savvy jury of one's <laughs> peers, but so so often recommendations like this, they, they don't actually lead to change and there needs to be political will behind them. How can we make sure that there's actual follow-through on the part of the provincial government? How, how does that happen? That's the biggest challenge, Garvia. And mm. the first chunk of the recommendations was all about accountability. Um, there's a lot of skepticism that this can just end up in, you know, bureaucrats' inboxes, right? right? Like they say, hey, follow these recommendations. It will really change things. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll get to it. And then if the political parties of the day don't really care about intimate partner violence or, or see it as an issue, then it will just, you know, languish. And, and Valerie Warmerdam in the press conference after the recommendations came out, after the verdict from the jury, said, you know, her motivation for being involved was that there was one thing she thought would be really easy to change, which was, let's make sure that people, sureties, which are people that are supposed to kind of watch over somebody who's out on probation or out on bail, make sure that they don't have access to guns if that person is living in their home. That seems really easy, right? Her mother had acted as a surety for Basil Barutsky when he was in and out of jail on one of his many counts. And she had kept his guns safe because they're family heirlooms. And that's the case often in rural areas. But guess what? You know, he had easy access to weapons and could threaten her with them all the time. She thought that would be a very easy thing to change. Let's just change the rules to make sure that these guys do not have access to weapons if they're out on bail uh, via, you know, their partner or somebody else. Didn't she do her research before getting involved in this inquest process and found that very same recommendation in the May Isles inquest, which was an intimate partner violence coroner's inquest from the 90s? Wow. Has that changed at all? No, nothing's changed. She was furious. She's angry, and rightly so. 
There needs to be political will that changes things. And there have been changes in the past from these inquest reports. Uh, the D- Domestic Violence Death Review Committee is one that has come from a prior inquest. Mm. But, you know, there needs to be action that is easy to take or very hard to take, transformative mm-hmm. to take. There are a lot of recommendations in here that won't be that difficult if, you know, there is just some motivation. Ideally, even the local MP, MPP in this writing would take some real action. I was I was live tweeting this inquest as often as I could. And I would often tag those MPPs and mm-hmm. uh, ministers that are in charge of these issues. They need to really take this on. And some of these things could be really, you know, cost saving and also, you know, just something that would help the systems run a bit better. Like, how come government bodies and ministries don't talk to each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much siloing that happens. And I think a lot of our experiences in, in, in life, but certainly in government, you know, a lot of the people that really need help dealing with intimate partner violence are also accessing welfare, um, mm-hmm. you know, social social assistance, are also um, struggling to access uh, housing. And a huge problem in rural Ontario with these issues is that there's no transportation to get from point A to point B. You know, it's very isolating. There is access to, to guns very easily. There are things that can be changed uh, that are quite simple in terms of investments that could change things for, for folks and really be transformative. One of the recommendations that I really liked and thought was pretty powerful was stop funding services for women fleeing violence as if they're just projects. You know, these, right. are, these are people's lives. Um, they have to reapply for funding every year and they are burnt out trying to support survivors in the community. And... Uh, they're very under-resourced. And another one is that even just funding in, in governments in general, the way it works is per capita. So not that many people re- live in Renfrew County compared to Toronto. Toronto gets a lot of money. And sure, we need a lot of money here in Toronto to, to fund a lot of things. And we're starved for a lot of resources too. But out there, the needs are incredible. Mm-hmm. And because there are few people living there, they get scraps in terms of resources. So that needs to change as well. So I mean, these are things that that can be done with the stroke of a pen in Toronto at Queen's Park, in Ottawa at Parliament Hill, and uh, and they just need a real real champions. And so, part of what I've been interested in and following this inquest, I think it's it's really possible if we are loud enough about these issues, if we Mm -hmm. understand that they are affecting us and our communities, in our families. And I honestly, that is actually something that came out of the jury. They realized that this had been happening in their own families, in their own communities, and just had not seen and appreciated the extent of it in the ways that are factually true, you know, that, that, you know, his, so a sister-in-law or a partner of a friend, um, you know, that this is happening to them. And if, if things don't get intervened on early enough and actively enough, potentially could end in this horrible violence that shook the entire, uh, you know, expanse of Renfrew County and continues to. And I think, and I hope that this process of the inquest has been healing in some ways, but there's a lot in terms of how to, to act on this. Perpetrators were addressed in the recommendations. And I just want to know about the importance of that and how, and how that is meant to shift the needle, move the, move the mark on this. I was really struck by the prominence of this in the inquest. Mm-hmm. Valerie Warmerdam was one of the first people to testify on the first day. And when she talked about her experience of this and what she really cared about, it was let's get help for people like Basil Barutsky and those who are perhaps not as extreme or as damaged 
but she saw him as a human being, not a monster necessarily, despite this horrific act that he took um, on that day. How could someone who is at risk of perpetrating such violence um, get some help earlier? There was a huge problem in this case in that uh, there was a court-ordered program that Basil Borutsky was sent to by a judge called the Partner Assault Response Program, the PAR program. That is something Ontario has implemented, connected to probation. Let's get these guys in a room to deal with their issues, right? Like, talk it out. Talk to somebody who's trained as a counselor. The problem is that it's court mandated. And we know from a lot of addictions issues or a lot of programs like that, if you really don't want to be there, you don't see that you have a problem. It's just not a headspace you're in yet. You're not going to go or you're not going to benefit from it. Basil Burtsky just didn't show up to this program despite being court ordered to go. That's a problem on its own. Can we actually bring some of these programs uh, into the community and, and be something that folks can interact with prior to things escalating. One of the suggestions, and I can't remember if it was among the 72 presented or was a jury's idea, was like a hotline or Mm. a place for folks to call if they are finding that they are carrying out their anxieties and and frustrations out on their partner. If they, Mm. you know, because we heard from an expert who testified that most men, and I'm going to say men, and I know that's, um, you know, that is that is the bulk of the perpetrators are men. Most men will only assault once or twice, and they mm. will see that as problematic behavior, and they will want to change. So, how do we support those men earlier on in the process? Because we know relationships are complicated. We know people are dealing with a lot of stress. We know that there that abuse is cyclical. Maybe they had abuse in their home as children. And or were abused themselves or saw their mother abused. And they just learned that as that's the appropriate way or that's okay to, to carry out. How do we sort of nip that in the bud? And then there's, of course, a lot of recommendations and there has always been a lot of talk about um, education in schools. Um, mm-hmm. How do we, you know, talk about consent and and healthy relationships? But but even as, as men, like, how do we provide like a, a better culture, a more supportive culture? So... There's a lot too about bystander intervention. Like, mm. let's make sure that that people can speak up and and will speak up because that did not happen in this case with Basil Brudsky. And also, like, if people are in imprisoned in jail for intimate partner violence, how do we engage them in that setting? Perhaps, which is a quite a hostile setting, but mm. can there be support programs within that space? Because the other part of the problem with the partner assault response program in a community like Renfrew County. Uh, one of the towns in Renfrew County is uh, Eganville. That's where Natalie Warmerdam was working. That's the mm. only place where they were doing this PAR program. So he would have to show up, you know, right down the street from where she was right. supposed to be working. Right. And that was terrifying for her. So, yeah, like perpetrator response was was a really interesting um, avenue that this inquest went down. And Valerie said, we need to create a system that does that is not designed to only respond to monsters or treat these people like monsters because in our lives, in our communities, that's not what they are until something horrible happens like this. They're Mm -hmm. our loved ones. We want to support them. Absolutely. One of the recommendations that I want to touch on um, before I let you go is recognition of femicide in the criminal code is also mentioned and I want to get into that just a little bit and why that is is so important. Why language 
like, you know, it's, it's a shift in language. It's one of those recommendations that you talked about that takes the stroke of a pen, but it's very powerful. So I wonder mm-hmm. if you could just get into that. Yeah, adding femicide to the criminal code of Canada would be something that the federal government would need to do. Um, what the experts involved in the testimony in the in the inquest said would be so powerful about that is that it would codify this type of violence as something connected to misogyny, so the the hatred of women and girls. It is a term that is new to a lot of folks that is used around the world, though Latin America, Europe, femicide is a way to sort of connect misogyny and um, targeting of, uh, you know, a certain person because of their gender with that crime, with that killing specifically. Mm. So femicides are, you know, would include something like being murdered by your partner or your ex-partner, or, you know, often the way this violence carries out is as is, is children are killed by their partners too, as a way of, you know, getting back at that, say, the mother of the children, which is such mm. a horrific crime. It's also in in terror uh, as well. There was some some killings at a spa in Toronto a few years ago in the early part of the pandemic, where women were targeted, um, sex workers were targeted, and that has happened in it happened in Atlanta as well uh, a few years ago. And so, femis- adding femicide to the criminal code would identify these crimes as hate motivated in a way, um, because misogyny is a form of hate. And so there would be some consequences that flow from that um, in the criminal the criminal justice systems that are responsible for carrying out imprisonment and mm-hmm. programs and things like that, like in Ontario, right? Like you you know it's the federal code, but the Ontario justice system is responsible often for dealing with those. So there would be a lot of trickle down effects from that, and and you know right. maybe maybe the impacts on the communities and the perpetrator would be a bit different than dealing with a sort of typical homicide track. Because the other the other frustrating thing is when there's a domestic homicide, it is not called that early on. You know, in media reports, it's just like, there's no risk to the public. You know, this was a private, it just reinforces and now we've come full circle on it being a private matter. Right. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons. It keeps this hidden. It keeps this um, something that is not acknowledged as a real systemic problem and it keeps people perpetrating it. Last question. This feels like a very important case, a very important inquest. So for you as a journalist, why is it important to be there to document it and and be in the moment? Well, Garvey, I hate to say this, but there are very few journalists paying attention to intimate partner violence in this country. There are obviously a lot of problems in this world. You know, democracy is dying. Sure. There's been a global pandemic. Anti-Black racism is rampant and Indigenous issues and so on and so forth. Um, this is something that actually touches on so many other aspects of our society as well, um, affordability, poverty. And so I see this as an issue that if that needs to be part of the conversation in a way that it has not been. Mm. These women deserve to be alive still. Um, mm-hmm. These families deserve to be protected from the trauma that affects so many beyond just that that intimate partner relationship it affects communities. And that has been very clear in Renfrew County. This has been highly traumatic for everyone there. And it has lingered nearly seven years later. Um, I covered this initially for Chatelaine when I was a senior writer there. Um, and it has just haunted me, this story. It has just stayed mm-hmm. with me as something that was so entirely preventable, complex, nuanced, to be sure. But those are the stories that we need to be looking at 
closely. And especially when there is something that can be done to prevent future homicides, there is action that can be taken. This coroner's inquest is a really good step in that direction. There are 86 recommendations that can be acted upon. Who knows how many will, how many will continue to be shelved. I see my role as being someone who can shine a light on these ideas and try to push for accountability because those early recommendations about accountability, you know, they're, they're very, they're very possible. These are things like let's ensure that in a year's time, the relevant ministers and the relevant actors, I guess, that should be mm-hmm. doing something on this inquest are, are doing something. So I will be in a year's time making sure that I'm tuned in and seeing what, what have you done? And if they haven't done anything or are very little, we should be loud about that in our communities. We should be loud about that on social media. We should be loud about that with our local representatives. So I think, I think there are roles that all of us can play, never mind just me. Um, but, but sort of shining a light on it and being engaged with it, I felt has been important to do. Thank you so much for doing exactly that, Sarah. And thank you so much for being with us here today on The Big Story. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having a segment on this. I really appreciate it too. Sarah Bosveld is a freelance journalist. You can find her byline in Flair, Today's Parent, Refinery29, The Local, and many others. Sarah has written multiple pieces on the Renfrew County murders for Chatelaine Magazine. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us anytime via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, you can call us at 416-935-5935. If you're able to review this podcast, please do so. It'd be really nice to hear from you. I'm Garvey Bailey, sitting in for Jordan Heath Rawlings this week. We'll talk tomorrow. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency.